Great what Scott said. It's definitely, this is God's message, not necessarily mine. And uh, for those of you who are further ahead in the faith than me, and this might, some of this might seem like you've done this before, well, I haven't, so. Because um, you see, there are these bits in the Bible, um, especially the New Testament, if you have read it. Um, you might have noticed that reasonably regularly, the writers, including Jesus, make statements like, be perfect, because God is perfect. We pray that you will become perfect. Thank you. Be completely holy. No, not wrong, but right. Um, now, in my Bible margins, where I make comments on, you know, stuff when I'm reading it, I've written, I know that I actually have, against one of those, the word impossible. Um, and, and also, in another point, where it says, you know, be completely holy, I've written, well, thank you, Jesus, for your mercy, because I am not perfect, and I am really grateful you have covered my sins. Um, because I am extremely aware of how much I stuff up. I, for many years, have empathised with Paul when he says, you know, I want to do good, but I don't. I am painfully aware of the gap between who I want to be and, as Jesus' follower, and my actions on occasions. Uh, I, I actually hate that, personally. I hate when my sin, whether it be my anger or my thoughtlessness, uh, my selfishness, my pride or my fear, I hate it when it hurts people. And I hate the consequences as well. They don't feel at all nice. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I'm resigned to that, you know, this is a broken world. I'm a broken person. It's the now and the not yet of the kingdom. And, you know, since Jesus, I am better than I was. And I will keep fixing my eyes on him. And hopefully, you know, gradually in his strength, I will stop stuffing up as much and, you know, and, and I'll be perfect in heaven. Now, that's not very victorious sounding, is it, um, as I listen to myself? I mean, it's very reasonable, um, but it's not, you know, we are more than conquerors. Um, yes, it's encouraging, you know, if you sort of feel broken to sort of hear that, but I wouldn't call it something that would um, inspire other people to follow Jesus. You know, follow Jesus and you too can become gradually less of a stuff-up. Um, yeah, that inspires me. Uh, but I think, I think actually I have had it all wrong, um, at least mentally. Emotionally, that pain I feel about the gap between what I want to do and what I actually do, I think that's a sign that there is something not right here. Um, and in the last couple of weeks, as, as God has been talking to me more and more about this, uh, I have definitely had a shift in my understanding um, of this topic, um, which it may not be, you know, some of you, you may be very familiar with it, but it's sort of new to me what I'm going to talk about here. Um, and it, it came from reading things like the Bible, uh, the writings of some wise people, and also the lives of guests, I, of the people I guess we'd call super Christians. And I don't mean like, you know, holier than thou people. I mean the ones who are actually like Jesus, you know, who genuinely seem to be living on a different plane of closeness to God and, and acting from that. Because, you know, lovely as we all are, we are not completely like Jesus. Um, and this is what Paul in Ephesians does actually seem to expect that we, that I at least, would become. You know, Ephesians 4.15, we must grow up in every way to Christ. Um, as an aside, the last few things that God has asked me to preach on, like Bible reading and prayer and this one, he's actually given me some experiences that I've had to go through. And if he ever asks me to speak on martyrdom, I am going to be worried. Uh, now, yeah, nervous laugh there, because that's in the Bible, isn't it? So let's wind it down a notch to something more achievable, like complete perfection and holiness. Yeah. Um, I write stories and plays, and almost all stories begin like this. Things are out of balance in the hero's life and world. And I think I've started by describing something like that. And then in stories, 
there comes a call to adventure. Leave the Shire, Frodo. Moana, leave your island. Uh, even in the Avengers, you know, Thor, leave your immaturity and grow up to be the sacrificial warrior you were called to be. I mean, imagine, imagine if we could be done with this, this slavery to stuffing up, this, you know, not being the people we want to be. I mean, maybe it doesn't bother you, but it bothers me. You know, I want to be the people that, that, that seem to be described in the Bible. You know, not to just to sing about loving Jesus, but to actually feel powerful love for him. To not, you know, keep worrying or be resigned to the fact that I'm going to fail in my way of behaving to others. You know, I want to love people like Jesus does. Imagine if that was possible. I mean, not just occasionally or gradually as we go through life, but sooner than we think, you know, and maybe, maybe even all the time. Is this possible? Because, now I've been blessed in the churches I've been in, um, but I actually don't think I've really been taught that perfection, the, the complete holiness that seems to be described in the Bible is actually possible, you know, being just like Jesus in this life. I mean, I think very good people who are resigned to their own, you know, keep stuffing up, have done their very best to help me follow Jesus. But I am not satisfied with keeping stuffing up. And I don't think I've ever been. When I read about people like Rhys Howes, who seem to show us that this is possible, that's when I feel even more this dissatisfaction, that, that call that there is more. Now, I've referred to him briefly before. Um, he's a guy who, one of the things he did, for example, in May 1939, uh, where the rulers of Britain declared that only a miracle would save Britain from invasion, he prayed and he interceded until it broke his body, and he received assurance from God, which he made public, that the enemy would not invade. Two days later, the leaders acknowledged that it was an intervention from God. I think the article up there calls it a miracle. As the calm sea allowed a safe evacuation. And months later, after the Battle of Britain, the air chief, he declared that there had been a divine intervention in that situation. And, you know, being used by God like that, that is pow that's powerful. That's wow. But what actually fascinates and disturbs me is what came before that victory, which was his personal surrender. Years prior, Reese Howes had a crisis experience over the course of a week or so where he, he seriously struggled with letting God have what Reese had actually already promised him, which was every aspect of his life. And as God dealt step by step with Reese Howes' ambition, his money, his comfort, he found it incredibly difficult each step. It was like death as he put to death, in a sense, uh, his right to those things. And, you know, I read about that with awe, and I still look at it with awe. What a sacrifice. It just seems too far a step for me. Yes, yeah, he grew greatly in holiness and was powerfully used by God, but the stakes, the stakes are very high. So perhaps a model less far ahead is needed, um, seeing as this, you know, this expectation does seem to be there in the Bible. So there's a couple of dear friends um, of mine who've just moved interstate, um, and they are... I love that picture of them, who are so keen in their following of Jesus. They are actually kind of a pointer of the way, to the way ahead for me. Because the interesting thing is that I would say only even a couple of years ago, the wife friend would have been, spiritually speaking, you know, we were kind of on par with where I was at. Now, I know, I know that none of us actually ever think like that, you know, that, well, I'm a little bit more Christian than that person, but that person over there, they are like way, they're extreme, they're way more like Jesus than I am. I know none of us think like that, but just... I do. Um, so naturally, I'm you know, interested in what my friend's I don't know, secret is, and it's not like they're hiding it from me. In their words, um, in their understanding, they are pursuing purity. Uh, they do that not by denying themselves, but by choosing or substituting things that lead to life, 
instead of having things that lead to death. So it's not, I'm not going to watch this show because it's got pretty realistic sex and violence scenes in it and I'm a good person so I don't do that. But instead, will the content of this show or this thing damage something good in me? Could I instead choose a show or a thing that will celebrate good things and lead me into more life and joy? So while a separation from impure things is occurring, a set of partners, it is driven by a pursuit of God rather than rejection or denial. And I really like that approach because I, rather than being, you know, rules about don't do this or don't do that, it's what will bring life. I mean, you just to say violence in, in a film is wrong is not necessarily bad, actually. You think about Passion of the Christ, that's an incredibly violent film, but it's so God-honouring and God-focusing, you can't not think about him while you watch it. So I find that what, what leads me to life is a good approach. And I've certainly seen the fruit of this in their lives. Um, in the Old Testament, just as a, a note, the, the priest in the temple system, when it was set up, God often used this idea of set-apartness or sanctifying of things as a way of conveying what holiness was to the people. Now, I have two points I want to address before I move any further, because they may be occurring to some people. Um, now, friends, like me, we know Jesus did it all. The Bible is very clear that positionally we are perfect, okay? We are perfect. If you have turned from your wrong way of life and you have turned to Jesus as saviour, you are covered by his sinlessness, his perfect goodness. You are perfect. Jesus has satisfied the demands of the law, that there are consequences for doing wrong. Um, and because God hates, in fact, he has no sin, no bad things in his presence. So we have, instead of our sin, Jesus' righteousness so that we can be in God's presence. We have his Holy Spirit live in us and we continue into eternity and we can continue into eternal life with him. So in that sense, in that sense, we are perfect, holy, righteous, made good, all words describing this state of being acceptable to God through Jesus. And, and we need that. I mean, when we're honest with ourselves about things that we do wrong, it is clear we need Jesus. It is impossible on our own to meet God's standard, which is 100% perfection. And that's not just him being a rules Nazi. It is simply the nature of his goodness. And we would not really want God to be even a little bit not good. You know, we want him to be completely good. Otherwise, that would be a terrifying thing, a God who was unreliable in his goodness. I mean, how lucky are we to be saved? The more I, whenever I become aware of my sins, the more I'm aware of them, the more intensely grateful I become to Jesus. Now, and the second thing I want to just bring up is that if, if this talk of, of perfection, of being good, is stirring up any kind of uh, like hopelessness or shame or condemnation, if you're feeling bad about things that you've done wrong, about not being good enough, well, there are two responses, depending on whether you have accepted Jesus or not. The first is, if you aren't a follower of Jesus, just let this awareness of your wrongdoing turn you to Jesus. Say, mercy, please, I need you. I am not and I cannot be good, holy good. Take my sin. I don't want it. I want you instead. And if you are a follower of Jesus, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I love that verse. I say it again. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.33. Who will accuse God's chosen people? God himself declares them not guilty. So take that on board, guys. As followers, when we stuff up, you know, let the awareness of it the contr and, and contrition, your sorriness, fuel praise. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace towards us. We didn't deserve it. Thank you. Yes, help me sin no more. You know, that's my resolve. But most of all, I'm grateful. 
Your sacrifice took my shame. I'm not feeling condemned. My focus is Jesus in all of this. Now, this all may seem like, you know, yes, basic, obvious stuff. We've covered it before. But I need to say it because that perfection, that holiness, etc., being described in the New Testament that Jesus has achieved for us um, is in an eternal saved in an eternal saved sense isn't quite the same thing as the purity my friends are chasing is that that level of perfection that Paul and other writers in the New Testament are describing because the Bible writers they seem to be expecting and kind of and they're describing this as part of continuing to follow Jesus kind of that initially yeah we have baby steps you know the way that babies are kind of like little drunk midgets you know stumbling all around the place um a bit like the, you know, the, the apostles filled with the Holy Spirit of following. We start there. Um, but that we will actually, they seem to expect that we will become grown up, mature, able to walk properly. And that includes purity and perfection, complete holiness here on earth. I mean, it sounds like it anyways. Let's look at a few verses. Um, Colossians 2.6. Since you have accepted Jesus the anointed one as your ruler live united to him. And I'm going to paraphrase the next couple of verses. Go deep. Base everything you do on him. Become stronger in your faith. Doesn't sound too bad. 1 Timothy 6.11. Strive for righteousness, godliness. Now, strive, we don't often like that word because that's a whole, you know, Jesus did it all. So why are we being told to strive? 2 Corinthians 13.5. Put yourself to the test and just judge to find yourself to find out whether you are living in faith. Uh, verse 7, we pray that you will do no wrong. We pray that you will become perfect. Strive, there's that word again, for perfection. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. So then, let us purify ourselves from everything that makes body or soul unclean. And let us be completely holy by living in awe of God. Colossians 3, 8. Get rid of anger, flaring up and hate. No insults or dirty talk ever. Don't lie, because you've taken off the old self's habits and have put on the new self. That's what we call being born again, and literally a new self. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Don't know about you, but I don't do all those things all the time. Um, 1 Peter 1.15. Uh, be holy in all you do, like God. Uh, Ephesians 3.19. And so be completely filled with the very nature of God. Completely filled with God. Ephesians 4.15. We must grow up in every way to Christ. Uh, Ephesians 4.13, we shall become mature people, reaching up, and I find this scary, to the very height of Christ's stature, and the very height of Christ's stature ends up on a cross, people. Now, that's a lot of verses, but I wanted you to understand I wasn't just picking one verse here. It was, you know, I checked. It's in there. Um, and you know what? It sounds impossible. I mean, that's extremely high expectations, and it actually doesn't sound very fun. You know, any coming across does not sound fun, and apparently I've signed up for it because there are other verses about followers of Jesus being obedient and obeying what God wants and not what we want. So, you know, like Reese Howells, uh, Romans 6.19, you must now surrender yourselves entirely as slaves of righteousness for holy purposes. Uh, 1 Peter 4.2, live the rest of your lives controlled by God's will. You know, this transaction where we're sorry for what we've done wrong and Jesus becomes my king actually includes all my money, all my time, my things, the people I love, my reputation, my job, my freedom to do what I want. They're all God's and he can do with them what he likes. And if he wants to take them away, he can. And you know, I don't know about that. I don't, I don't know that I want him to take all my stuff. And notice the word my is in there so much. You know, I mean, when I read those verses, I think a lot of the time I've just kind of gone, la, 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 la. Um, you know, I'll just, let's just paper over that or just flip the page. Um, 
Or I take, you know, just like incremental steps towards giving God a bit more of me, even though the deal is all. Because perfection, I mean, actually giving God every aspect of your life. I have, I know that in the past I have definitely made a genuine, all right, take it. But I'm kind of keeping some things clenched and I kind of yank them back later. I've definitely yanked an awful lot of things back later. And even though I think I have let go of a few small bits and I don't miss them, I still struggle with each release. Um, I tried doing the, you know, what would Jesus do um, from the book, um, the classic In His Steps. May, you may know the story. Um, in the book, the characters try to live as though Jesus was living their life, you know, making their choices, doing their jobs, controlling their money. And I tried that after reading that book. I was like, yeah. And, you know, and I did, I did get a little bit further ahead. Um, it was good to not do anything on Sunday except read the Bible and go to church. It was a good, actually a good thing. Um, but I couldn't keep it up. I definitely work on Sundays. Um, because perfection is not possible. And nobody actually seems to talk like it is. Because it isn't. Except I am actually beginning to think it might be. Um, because if I take the Bible... And some examples of people that I've read about seriously, I, I have to entertain seriously that it is meant to be possible. So how? Why, why are we not seeing perfect Christians all around us? Not saying that you guys aren't perfect, but yeah, anyway. Um, why, why are we still struggling when Romans 6 tells us we are no longer slaves to sin? If I'm no longer a slave to sin, why did I hurt someone really badly last week? Why? Well... Even though I know it mentally, I think that I, and maybe you, I have to break off trying to be good. You know, yeah, the verses say strive for perfection. You know, it's in Timothy, it's in Corinthians. Ah, the paradoxes of Christianity. You need you to hold two things in tension here. Yes, Timothy 2.19 says, whoever says he belongs to the Lord must turn away from wrongdoing. We, we, we've got to do something. We've got to turn. Um, but following Jesus isn't modifying our behaviour, okay? Isn't us going, I will modify my behaviour now. Galatians 2.16, where they're talking to already saved people who were trying to be good, Paul was said to them, we know that a person is put right with God only through their faith in Jesus Christ, never by doing what the law requires. So we are told to strive to be perfect, but it's not about us striving to be perfect. And anyway, we can't. I mean, we, we may resolve to sin no more, but while sometimes, and maybe even often, we choose right over wrong, there are plenty of times we skip that whole choosing step and just go straight to doing bad stuff. Um, or we just don't do the, the best that God wants for us. In fact, sometimes we will watch ourselves doing bad stuff, we will know that it's wrong, and internally we're thinking, just stop, stop, and we just keep on doing it. And we just watch ourselves. It's like when we're resolved to be good with food and we open the freezer and we're like, no, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm just going to look at the ice cream. And then we, we get out the ice cream and we're like, no, stop, stop now. And we get the spoon and we eat the whole thing. We watch ourselves eat the entire container. This is what Paul describes when he says, the good I want to do, I don't do it. Instead, I do bad stuff that I don't want to do. Who will rescue me? And he says, thank you, God. It's through Jesus because this is the missing link. Jesus living in us, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit. And the correct answer is Jesus. Uh, it always is, and it is in almost every part of this sermon. The answer is Jesus. Philippians 1, 10 to 11 says, Then you'll be free from all impurity. Your lives will be filled with the truly good qualities that only Jesus Christ can produce. Uh, Ephesians 6:10. Build up your strength in union with the Lord and by means of his holy power. Uh, he, he will, Titus 2.14, make us, he will make us a pure people. We are to strive to be perfect, 
but it has to be through the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot get there in our own strength. And see, that was what was unclear in the what would Jesus do story. Uh, when I read it, it seemed to indicate that it was the characters doing it through their own strength rather than explicitly stating uh, it was the Holy Spirit. Reese Howells, who I talked about before, when he struggled to surrender, he couldn't do it. He actually couldn't do it. He realised that only the Holy Spirit in him could be like Jesus. He's like, you know, you have to do it for me, Lord, even the point of making the decision to do it. He wasn't a superhero. He was somebody just like us. And again, this isn't about us earning our salvation. That is done. But there's more for us. And we had to strive after it, whilst at the same time, completely relying on and asking Jesus to do it all. Think of the disciples. When they followed Jesus, they spent every minute of three years, the next three years, in his presence. They were following him, learning how to be like him. But he wasn't in them. So they stuffed up. They stuffed up a lot. You know, even though they had the living, breathing Jesus right there next to them, and they still stuffed up. I mean, we heard that this morning, the betrayal. But then, then Jesus conquered death. He rose to heaven and the Holy Spirit came down to live in them. And then, then we see a definite difference. You can read about it in the Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles, but it's actually the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the Apostles. It's the Holy Spirit doing everything. Now, clearly, this isn't a click. You are now perfect in both an eternal and an earthly sense. Um, from the reading I've done, but also as the verses and others that I've read and others make clear, God has chosen that his usual process is that we are to strive by his power to mature into being holy in every way. I have written down at this point, take a drink, so I'm going to, I have to remind myself or I just get very dry. Um, I get very excited and I want to keep talking. <sighs> Yet as I read the stories of Jesus' followers, who seem to have gotten pretty close to this this being complete, uh, I've got a picture of a few of them up there, um, they tend to have in common this sort of realising or, or crisis moment about this. These were, these were ordinary people, okay? They were like us. Some of them were poor, some of them were educated, some of them were weird, uh, some of them were normal. Some of them had been drunks and abusers and atheists and little social butterflies who cared about their appearance. And they were already Holy Spirit-filled, like we are, but... In their lives, they get onto this path where they're dissatisfied, you know, they're discontent that they seem to still be a slave to sin and they want more. And to go deeper, there seems to be this threshold where they go, oh, everything. As we are invited, as we follow Jesus, it seems almost expected to go deeper, there are parts of us, the Bible calls it our flesh or our old self, it can't go, it can't go it ha there any further. It has to be dealt with before we can take a step further. For the Holy Spirit to make us pure, he has to be able to get at all of us via this surrendering up. But because we are, you know, we're very still this world focused, it's hard. I mean, we may know, may know the truth that what God has for us is better than what we let go of. Um, but we still find it hard to grasp because, you know, it looks unpleasant. Uh, it's uncomfortable looking. It's uncertain. I mean, unsafe, you know, my money, my comfort, my security, my family, my things, my comfortable bed. It could take it all. It's amazing how often I'm like the bed that I'm most reluctant to give up. Um, <laughs> it's the honest truth. And I also don't even take my family either. Um, and my bed. Um, <laughs> It looks like a cross. It feels like death. Um, Hebrew 12 says we need to focus on Jesus, ridding ourselves of everything that gets in the way. We run, fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's always Jesus. 
and his example. We don't give up because of the cross before us. All right, you have my bed, Lord. Uh, we will have crosses, things far worse than just giving up a bed, things that will, that will in us have to be crucified. It's actually, I'd rather give my bed sometimes than give up my pride. Um, but we think of what Jesus went through and we don't give up, even as we struggle against sin. Because it's Jesus, it's God, we just keep our eyes on Jesus to do this. But you know, complacency is a very powerful thing. I mean, you know, the healing, I'm in bed, I am so comfy, I want to stay here, I don't want to go out there where it is cold and children and people will expect things of me and, you know, I, I shall sleep a little longer. You know, complacency, or, you know, sure, I'd love to be healthier, fitter, but, oh, effort, you know, that's good enough, it'll be fine. There is a good chance if you are following Jesus and have the Holy Spirit in you, you are doing more good than wrong and you are certainly better than you were before you became a Christian. You know, we, we can feel satisfied with that. You know, I'm doing okay. Most, look, most normal Christians are like me, Tavia. I'm not called to be an extreme Christian. Yeah, most normal Christians aren't extreme, and that's actually a tragedy. Now, remember, no, absolute, we are no, no, no condemnation for us, but extreme Christianity is what normal Christianity is actually supposed to be. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, May the God who gives us peace make us holy in every way. And keep your whole being, spirit, soul, and body free from every fault. It's pretty explicit. Being pretty good and not sinning most of the time and being generally nice and well-behaved and hardworking, it's nice, but it's not what we were called to. We are called to something higher, something that changes this world and makes the people around us sit up and want to know Jesus. I don't know about you, but I am tired of not bearing fruit in terms of salvations around me. I want people to know Jesus. But I don't want you to be oppressed by this whole, you know, what you, you know, what you should be and what you aren't, or what I should be and I'm not. I'm, you know, and all this, these expectations of extreme behaviour and sacrifice and you know, putting the self to death because you know they're just so inviting. So I'm actually going to um, draw you with a story instead. Frank Laubach said, "God is a disturber of our comfort," and Frank's story has long tantalised me ever since I first heard about it. He was a guy, he lived in the 1930s, and he endeavoured to practice the presence of God. Uh, he's like that monk brother Lawrence who I spoke about last time. So Frank's way was to aim. This is his personal way. There's no one way to do this, guys. This is not a rule for you to follow. It's just his way. His way was to aim to think of God for one second in every minute. In fact, when he was preaching, he used to give people a piece of paper with, you know, 60 minutes, which is apparently how long he preached for. I'm not going to preach that long. Uh, on it, and people could tick if they actually, for one second, thought of God in that minute and then, you know, see how they went. Now, of course, at first, Frank often failed, you know, for hours, for days. But like a baby that gradually, you know, pulls herself up, you know, to stumble a step and then falls only to have another go and, and then to get distracted by something and to come back to it, he kept at it. Doing this, this refocusing back to God, it didn't necessarily become easier, but intriguingly, he says, everything else did as God took care of the rest. Um, and I like this because it's like my friend's approach. This isn't, a, this isn't a rule. It's just about doing, he was just doing stuff with Jesus. And, and when we do stuff with Jesus, it definitely affects our behaviour. You know, I, I, I even try to do this. I'm like, you know, if I, have a, if I stop and I'm like, ah, oh, what am I doing now? Lord, you know, what should I be doing now? And usually he says, you should be leaving to get to work um, or something else. And I've actually found that since I try to listen to God more, while I may not be on time to everything, I actually often arrive at the right time, which is interesting. So Frank Laubach, he, he described this as very strenuous. 
uh, keeping God in mind, trying to do all things through and with him. He said, look, it's strenuous. I'm striving here. But he found that after a while, as it became a habit, uh, he could keep two things in mind at once for longer. Um, he said, particularly it was, he said it was particularly as he talked more about God. He said, in order to keep God, I had to give him away. Uh, his aim was for God to become an element in every thought. And, you know, a bit like the way it takes a lot of stumbling and concentration initially as a small child learns to walk, they're really giving their all focus to it. Eventually, you know, we can all walk without doing, we don't have to focus and concentrate. We can actually do other things and walk at the same time. Uh, he said it was almost like having double vision. He, he, as he would look at people, he would say to himself, I am seeing a beloved child of God, or I am about to talk to a person God loves. And he said people would look back and they would act like they wanted to go with him. He said, I saw a little of that marvellous pull Jesus had. Now, I find that compelling, attractive and very challenging, but attractive enough to give it a go. Now, I won't share all of my failures, but I have seen a glimpse of what he's described as I've intermittently tried to look at people and say, this is someone God loves. I have seen something in their countenance change. It's like, and it's happened more than once. It's like the Holy Spirit shines on them and they, they, they brighten. They actually seem to want to stay with me, even to perfect strangers. It, it, it's only happened a few times, but enough for me to go, because I've been deliberate about it, go, okay, that's interesting, God. Um, so, yeah, while I usually forget to do it, I'm afraid as I look at you guys, I'm often not thinking. I know that you are a beloved child of God, but it's not foremost in my head all the time because I'm thinking about other things. But when I do it, I am more and more convinced of the value, as the psalmist said, of keeping the Lord always before us. And as Paul said, praying continually. And remember, that's not on your hands and knees. It's just a being with God, talking to him continually. It's that it's a very big help if we do this. So because of what I've seen, I'm drawn back to keeping on going with it. God draws us onwards. You know, it isn't a, you should. He just, he draws us. It should be something attractive to us that we want to pursue. He deliberately makes us unsatisfied. Uh, there was this awesome uh, preacher and writer in the 1940s called A.W. Tozer, and he said, I have tasted your goodness, and it has both satisfied and made me thirsty for more. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. Begin in mercy a new work of love in me. Say to my soul, rise up my love, my fair one, and come away, and then Give me grace to rise and follow you from this misty lowland where I have wandered for so long. Holy dissatisfaction is not a bad thing. Having God, but yet always wanting more of him. To have found God and yet to still pursue him. That's those verses, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. Hungering for his holiness in us, not just at a moment here or there, but as a permanent experience. Like Moses in Exodus 33, like Moses knew God. God said so. He said, I know you very well. So we know that Moses knew God. And Moses' response was, show me more of you. I know you, show me more of you. He specifically said, show me the dazzling light of your presence. And God said, I won't just show you my glory. I'm going to tell you my sacred name. And he did. Moses was showing us the path of constant seeking. Come follow me, you know, is our catch cry for this year. But it's not a once thing. It's a follow me and keep following. Like the psalmist said, my soul follows hard after you. Because God isn't complacent like we are. He longs for us not to miss out on the complete package. We're like people who check into a fantastic resort or theme park and spend the entire time in the foyer going, oh, it's a nice foyer. I like it here. I mean, this is much nicer than it was at home. Um, and, you know, it is. It's a great foyer. 
But there is so much more waiting for us in the rest of the place if we would just let the host take our baggage. Yes, we are in the kingdom, and we won't be completely in it till eternity, but there is still plenty more of the kingdom to be had now. Or less fun, you could say that God is like the world's most intense personal trainer. He will push you. He will point out things that need to be put to death. And then when you think you have a handle on that, yeah, perseverance, woo, he will change the workout and work on something else. What do you mean, self-control? I don't know, no. And then he'll revisit that former thing that you thought you had sorted. Um, because the less your old self lives in you, in a sense, the more you are giving the Holy Spirit to control. Um, 1 Timothy 4 kind of uses this, this, this sporting analogy, you know, keep yourself in training for a godly life. Spiritual exercise is valuable in every way. We struggle, we work hard. It, you know, it sounds like a workout. My friends who I mentioned earlier, they have seen an increase in their spiritual authority and prophetic accuracy. It's undeniable. And I think this is because, for the same reason we don't give, you know, weapons or scalpels to people who aren't, you know, trained to use them, by making ourselves more available to the Holy Spirit, we become more usable by him because he can train us. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.20 explains that when we make ourselves clean from evil things, we become like special gold and silver vessels that get used, set apart, sanctified for special purposes because we are dedicated and useful to our master, ready to be used for every good deed. And God would love to make us into these special sanctified vessels. Um, there's a little point I added this morning, so I'm just going to come to it. Because, you know, it's actually an immense privilege to be someone who contains God himself, the Holy Spirit. We are vessels, temples for the Holy Spirit that God himself lives in. God says in Isaiah, I created the whole universe. I created everything. What kind of place will you make for me to live in? But the thing about silver and gold is that the base metals have to be put through a refining process to purge out impurities before they can be used. Silver goes in a crucible and gold into the very fire itself. There may well be sacrifice and suffering in this journey of surrender. But the more the metals were refined, the more clearly they reflected the refiner, just as those who are being refined and surrendering more of themselves more clearly reflect God. And if you are anything like me, there is a distinct part of you rebelling at this thought saying, refining, suffering, that sounds horrible. Or you might be, this is too hard, you know, you don't want to think about it, or it's scary. Or, look, I'm just okay where I am, you know, I like being comfortable, or this is just extreme. Perhaps you're sniffing at me going, you're not expected to be perfect, Tabe, you have it all wrong. Maybe I do. I'm just going from what I think I am understanding from the Bible. Um, I think we're expected to strive to be perfect, not to be perfect immediately. Or maybe you're thinking, you know, I can't do this, so I'm not going to try. And you're right about that. We can't. You remember, it is only by the Holy Spirit. It is always Jesus doing this, not us. Because it's not actually complacency we're fighting here. You see, Reese House said this. He said, sin, it isn't sin being put to death, because that's actually been paid for. It's self that's being put to death. Romans 6, chapter 6 to 8, and Colossians and other books talk about our flesh, our human nature. This is the old part of ourselves. And it controlled us and our minds and therefore our actions. We were slaves to doing wrong. It had all the power and it was leading us to death. Romans 6.6 6 says, This old being was being put to death with Christ on the cross so that its power would be destroyed and would be no longer be its slave. So it now has no power, it is not to rule, and we aren't to surrender to it. Instead, Romans 8 says, We are to live as the Holy Spirit tells us to. A new way. The spirit is to control our minds. 
because the Spirit is life for us. It is the part of us that will live on to, into eternity. It's by the Spirit that we put to death doing the wrong things. It's by the Spirit's power that we even worship God. Colossians 3.10 says our new being is constantly being renewed by God into his own image. He's doing it already, okay? But our flesh is screaming, hell no, and literally hell no. It is struggling because it does not want to be put to death. And because we're familiar with it and because we live in these bodies, you know, we cling to our chains because, our old chains, because they keep us comfortable and safe. We cling to our old flesh. It's hard to leave what is known, particularly when the words suffering and sacrifice and surrender are in the potential future. And our minds, they create these pictures of denial and discomfort. Oh, I'm going to miss out on the good stuff and everyone's going to think I'm weird. And, you know, and I wrote, I wrote a bunch of answers to that stuff. But I actually don't think logic, you know, yeah, God has the best for me. People already think we're weird. I don't actually think that's enough. Like every aspect in this pursuit of holiness that God wants for us is Jesus. The only way to break the hold of our, own, our old self and its complacency, that it, the hold that it has on us, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. He has to do it. So we ask him to break it off. In fact, we may need to actually ask him to help us ask him. Help me ask to break it off because I'm actually, I'm not sure that I want to. Holiness sounds uncomfortable and scary. And Jesus says we are to count the cost. And I have tried not to hide that from you. I've tried to make it clear. Even though Romans 8.12 says we have an obligation not to live as our human nature wants us to. I kind of want to. I like being controlled. I like being comfortable. Being obedient to God, as I'm supposed to mean might mean suffering, denial. It might mean giving up my holiday that I want to go on and giving the money to the poor. I don't know. may not. I don't want to. And the thing is that God will let us do that. He's incredibly patient. But if despite the loss of control over your life, the fear of what obedience might mean, all those anxious imaginings, and it's a very real struggle inside, you do want to pursue purity... It's again, it's because God is already at work in you. He's already, already here trying to you know, work with you. He's, if you bend the knee, it's him who helps you reluctantly do that. It's the one, he's the one helping you say, this is going to cost, but help me, Lord. I want to pursue this holiness that apparently I was supposed to be pursuing all along. I don't want to. I really don't want to, but help me want to. And most importantly, you do it. Lord, you sear out the sin in me because I, I can't take this sin out. You have to sear it out. It's impossible. You know, strip my pride, take my desire for control, take my anger, my precious reputation. Because like Romans 8.23, I groan to have my whole being set free. Don't listen to the lie that this is just for super Christians. Ordinary people of all sorts, people just like you and me, have in all sorts of different ways gone ahead of us in this. They've shown us that we can do this too. I could talk about John Fletcher. He fought depression and anger. Um, Christmas Evans, he was orphaned, abused, and he had his eye put out. Uh, the once suicidal Lorenzo Dow apparently maintained his odd sense of humour into his salvation. Um, there was a guy called Peter Cartwright. He was really wicked growing up. And as a preacher, he sometimes beat up rowdy people who tried to disturb his services. Sounds like a cool guy. Finney was a lawyer who used to be an atheist. Madame Guyon, she used to be a socialite who cared immensely about her looks. Uh, Billy Bray was a former drunk. And there's so many more, and their life accounts all show that they did attain on earth a great level of holiness that was deeply attractive to the world around and often led to revivals. Savonarola of Florence, he sacrificed everything in his drive to holiness, and he was a major precursor to the Protestant Reformation. Basically, without Savon, I find his name hard to say, Savonarola, we would not actually have Luther. 
Uh, Savonarola revolutionised Florence with a revival of holiness because people were so drawn to him. They were drawn by what God was doing. And as just an aside, God blesses the world through um, these people in other ways too. Like this guy advised on a system of democratic government that we is still following. It's a model for nations today to follow. He blessed the world in an ongoing way. True holiness, which includes all the fruit of kindness and patience and love and peace, is highly attractive to the world. Those who see it, they want to follow it. And that's why Hebrews 12, 7 says, speaking of those pursuing holiness, we should think on how they lived and died and imitate them. And 1 Timothy 4, 12 says, practice in order that your progress may be seen by all. So the world says, I want to follow these men and these women and these young people and these children as they are like their Lord, to be fascinated by us as we are fascinated by God. Because God wants to use us powerfully for his purposes. Think of the early church. They were ordinary, unschooled fishermen. And regarding the rise of the early church, a writer of that era said, the world was alarmed at the progress of an unstoppable power in their midst. Keith Green was someone who pursued holiness. I love his story. His story, no compromise. It, it, it has, ever since I heard it, I... It moves me and it draws me onwards. Now, some of the younger ones among you maybe may not be familiar with him unless your parents have played him ad nauseum to you. Um, but he was kind of like the Jesus culture of his day. He was, um, he was very popular. I played all the festivals and he was around in the early days of Vineyard. Ken Fish knew him. Um, he's an extremely talented pianist. He was an extremely talented songwriter and singer whose songs still speak powerfully today. But he was also, particularly when he started off, very outspoken and brash. He really rubbed people up the wrong way. But as he pursued God, he grew in gentleness and self-control. You can actually hear it in his songs too. And his willingness to sacrifice. He said, take my life, Lord. God, use me. And God did. He and two of his young children and another family died. This makes me cry. In a light plane crash. And they were really young. And God has used that powerfully even until this day. In fact, right at that time, he used it powerfully. And he's got a song that it kind of sums... When I listened to it, I went, oh, that's my sermon. I kind of don't need to preach. I could just play it and you could all go, oh, yeah, that's what Tavia's trying to get at. I'm going to play um, a recording of his song, Rushing Wind, in a moment. Now, I play it... It's not as a form of any kind of manipulation. It is because I think the lyrics kind of just as a good, are a good summary, but also because I want to give you some time. I want to give a space for the Holy Spirit to speak directly to you, for you to talk directly to him. Um... It's really up to you. You might go, I don't want this. I'm quite happy where I'm at. And that's fine. Um, you might just want to just be thanking Jesus, going, well, Jesus, you really do everything, don't you? You die on the cross. You help me in every way and every aspect of my walk. Um, maybe you're like, actually, the complacency is a problem. I'm struggling with that. Or perhaps you're scared. Perhaps, like me, there's just some sin you are just so sick of. You are just so sick of it that you, you want the Holy Spirit to deal with that. Or you want him to point out something to you if you're like I, I, I get that you're here Lord and I don't really know what to do but I want you know maybe talk to him about that perhaps you are uh, like a Reese Howes and like all right I'm going for this I'm going to ask him to take it all perhaps you just want to be filled with longing you're like I see that there's something that people are chasing after here but I don't feel it maybe ask to be filled with longing I don't know um, so I'm going to play we're going to play the whole song um, and then we'll see what God is doing and we'll move from there and, and also do the, the healing points. So just... 
rushing wind blow through this temple, blowing out the dust within. Come and breathe your breath upon me. I've been born Blow through this temple, blowing. 